Hello, and welcome to the Big Fish Adventures in Tech podcast. My name is Saker Fisher, and I am very excited to introduce my first guest today, Christy Prosser. Christy has close to 30 years of tech experience and brings a wealth of knowledge to the table. In addition, she is an incredibly gifted photojournalist who has traveled the world to capture events such as the 2021 Iditarad, Queen Elizabeth's funeral, and most recently, the PBR Professional Bullwriters Competition. In today's episode, Christy shares the unconventional way in which she entered the field of technology, how she captured the attention of mentors to show her the ropes. She offers advice for those interested in pursuing a career in tech and tells us why we should all be taking our vacation days. I have known Christy for a long time. Um, And Christy, I was very deliberate in wanting for you to be my first guest on the show. One, because you're probably one of the most positive, uh, well-adjusted people I've ever met in my entire life. Well, thank you very much. Two, I think I I find your fascinating background, not only as a technology specialist, but also um, your passion for journalism and photography, I think is really, uh, you have a really compelling story to share. So I really appreciate you being my, uh, my first guest and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Perfect. So to start, I would love for you to just kind of walk us through your background. Where are you from? Um, any other information and how you got into the world of technology would be great. Sure, absolutely. Well, I'm originally from Georgia. I've lived up in New Hampshire now for the last seven years, and I'm a 27-year educator. Uh, my plan was to never enter into the field of education. My initial degree is actually in outdoor education, where I'd intended to go into being a guide and uh, doing rock climbing and traveling the world was my initial um, start. And I had accepted an opportunity to work with Outward Bound up in Chesapeake Bay. And about halfway up, as I was driving, I got a phone call for a position in a small school district in rural South Georgia for an outdoor educator position. And a friend called and said, there's this job, you will hate it, and you will not get it. So I said, really? Thank you for calling. And I turned my uh, truck around and I drove back to Georgia to interview the next day and ended up getting the position as one of the outdoor educators at a small rural school in South Georgia and fell in love with the kids, had no intentions to stay past the three, four months that was left in the school year. And I ended up staying with that school district for 12 years. After being an outdoor educator the first two years, the superintendent came to me and said, I understand you fixed a computer at the school. And I said, yes, I did. So then I became the school's technology coordinator. And a few months later, I became the school systems technology director, along with being their school safety director as well. It was kind of one of the true uh, open mouth, insert foot moments. And you got every job that you ended up potentially putting your hands on and making something work correctly. And from there, it kind of evolved. I then was recruited to a neighboring school system where I spent another eight years uh, with that school district as their director of student information systems, school safety and technology. And in 2016, I was uh, received an opportunity to study at Harvard in a superintendents and district emerging leaders class. And that is what brought me back to New Hampshire. So that's kind of where I've landed. And, and that's kind of a bit of my journey. And now I've been everything from an executive director in technology to chief technology officer to uh, director in tech uh, with a gamut of 
all areas from pre-kindergarten through high school for several school districts. That is, and see, this is what I love about our industry is that you rarely talk to someone who went to school specifically to be in IT. And so I really do find that truly fascinating. I mean, I went to school for communications. I When I first started, I didn't even know how the internet was connected, right? And I, I love that about our industry. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there that you need to have all these certifications and know exactly what you're doing to get started. And it scares a lot of people away from it, even taking that first step. Um, and so I find it really fascinating, your journey specifically. Um, so what did you do to kind of bridge that knowledge gap um, when you first started? When I first started, I'm, I'm very much a person who is a self-teaching person. Um, I tend to learn a lot better when I have an interest in something. And then I go learn how to make it work, take it apart, put it back together and keep doing that repetitively until I get the results that I'm after. It wasn't until 2001 that I returned back for my first graduate degree and I went back to school in instructional technology. At the same time, I started taking classes at a local technical college so I could get a little bit more of the knowledge base for Cisco, uh, Aruba, HP, any type of routing protocols, that type of stuff, just so that I could actually learn more from the network side. Everything I had done up until that point was literally looking over the shoulders of uh, some of the guys at the technical college and a lot of pleading to say, help me, teach me, and we need to get this fixed. And from that, just built friendships, networking, and uh, relationships from that point from my coworker side that brought me into saying, okay, this, this was a time when technology had just really entered into schools. And in Georgia, there was a group of us that actually came together and we would sit on weekends and literally take devices apart and then try to figure out how we would build our own WAN and LAN networks just simply. And then we basically would then rinse and repeat in all the neighboring school districts and say, okay, I have this many schools. I have this much distance between my schools. Can we make this work? And we did that for networking. And then we started doing the same thing on how to build school web pages. And then it just kind of evolved itself from that aspect and then it started from that point, then how do we build stronger infrastructures? And several years went by. And then, of course, technology increased and improved itself. And there were many more things in tech that did not have to be kind of the duct taped remedy effect of rinse and repeat. And we started getting more and more options to provide technology in schools for kids. And a lot more grant funding started coming down. Wow. So you have you're obviously a very intrinsically motivated person. Where do you think that comes from? I think just kind of being I'm um, I'm an only kid, uh, as my parents would uh, parents would say, I grew up on a farm mm -hmm. and we were surrounded by centurion farms. So if you did something, you either went miles to get to friends or to the neighbor's house growing up. So a lot of times was just being very curious on the farm, helping put a tractor back together or uh, sowing seeds so that we would end up, you know, planting the gardens. And one thing just kind of evolved itself to the next of just kind of the curiosity kind of at this point just kind of took fold for me. And then once I went into my undergrad and outdoor ed, my curiosity expanded beyond that. And that's when I started traveling the world and started with photography and photojournalism. Yeah. And I definitely want to get into that because I, I find that um, truly uh, just impressive how you're able to to find and maybe balance is the wrong word because I, I firmly believe that 
balance is, is a really tough thing to achieve. And I certainly never feel as though I'm achieving that in my life. But I do believe if you're truly passionate about something like you are with your photography, um, you make time for it and you seem to do that that really well. But um, as far as mentors are concerned, did you have, it sounds like you were really proactive about reaching out to people asking for help and weren't afraid to kind of say, raise your hand and say, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. Um how did that, you know, did you, do you have a specific mentor? Or is it just many mentors that you've come across and kind of collected in your life? Well, a lot of it would be kind of collected. I got crafty in the beginning of how to get people interested in being the mentor. And, uh, and kind of part of that goes back and you'll, you'll laugh about kind of the creativeness of, of building that network is um, at the first little school in outdoor ed, we also had a little farm and on that farm, I hatched a duck. And the duck imprinted to me and followed me around the schools. So then when I would go to the technical college, Einstein would follow me. And people would get very curious of who's this person with a duck following behind them everywhere they walk. And I would make it a point to go into the different schools that would be, whether if they were working on technology or working on just how to do the network infrastructure or even just welding, because we had to build our own racks to hold the uh, network gear. And I would just go and people's curiosity about the person with the duck then became conversations. Conversations then became friendships. Friendships then became networking. And uh, after a little bit of time, it just became just a genuine personability of relationships of people helping each other to achieve the outcomes that we needed to on limited resources. And over time, then I started becoming the mentor instead of the mentee. And that just kind of evolved itself over time. Yeah. And I think I, I'm laughing because I, I think that's just like, so how I've come to know you, that's just such a, you know, a story that completely, uh, is on brand for you. Um, and I also grew up on a farm too. So many of this I, I can relate to, but I, I think a lot of people get really, really busy and, um, you know, throughout their day and they maybe don't have time to, to be a mentor. And I, every single job and every single position that I've ever had, there's a direct, um, line of back to somebody that has mentored me or somebody that I reached out to. But that being said, when I first got in the industry, it was really hard to be, you know, 30 years old and kind of starting over again and, allowing myself to be that vulnerable and saying like, hi, I don't know what I'm doing. But now, you know, 10 years later, I'm like, oh gosh, I have, I have no problem raising my hand and saying, I don't understand this, or I don't know, you know, what you're talking about. So I think it's so important, um, to have people that are willing to bring you into the fold, right. And take you under their wing. And I think we're, we're missing a lot of that in this industry potentially. And, um, it's a disservice to kind of the, the younger folks that want to get involved. I, I agree with you on that. It's one of the things I think more and more we need to kind of step back and step up uh, because to do that, we need to bring people into the fold of technology, especially in an education perspective, because we just don't have the resources of personnel anymore. We're actually going out there and even right now and uh, the last couple of years, my scenarios have really been driven by recruiting people that had an interest to learn. Mm. My technique in hiring is to ask a person, where do you plan to be in five years? And if they say, well, working for you, I'm going to say, let's talk about that answer. Because my goal as a person who is in a leadership role, and especially in technology, if I'm not teaching my team and teaching the people I bring on board to say, 
I'm capable of and I'm learning enough from the person who brought me on board to teach me. And if I can't take that job from them or get a job equivalent, then I failed as a leader myself. Because if we're not teaching, we're not preparing the next generations. We're not preparing to be customer service driven. And we're not preparing in a sense that if we fail to teach, then we can't meet the timelines that we need so that education can move forward and children can continue to learn. Yeah. So to that end, I guess for folks that are just looking for where to start, what would your advice be to them? You know, they, they've they gone to school or they're just starting out like year one after college. They didn't necessarily study technology. Uh, what resources and where do you point them to? I think first of all is, is just taking a risk, um, being curious and trying something. Maybe, you know, maybe this fits for me and maybe it doesn't, but there's no harm in trying something for the first time. I mean, the worst thing anything in life is going to give you is a no or you don't like it. And that's one of the things that after a period of time, you sit there and say, I've already made myself successful. So how do you continue to turn around and then convey that so everyone else as they go to approach to do something to say, you're already successful and nobody can take that away from you. That success may be that you finished high school or you finished your college degree. Maybe you uh, took a chance to live abroad. Any of those type things, that is self-driven motivation and that is curiosity. And that's something that's just sometimes life says take a chance and, and be a believer that sometimes life leads you right where you're meant to be and follow it. Just just take the path and follow it and give it a try. Yeah, I think that's um for me, I like I describe myself as one of the most risk adverse people that I've ever known. And so for me to take that leap of faith after working in education um, was incredibly humbling, but it's honestly one of the best decisions that I've ever made. And I think what I love and I'm interested to hear your thoughts here, too, about this industry is that every single day you are learning something completely new. Like there is not a day that goes by where I'm not like, wow, my mind is blown. I didn't know that. And it makes waking up every single day, um, you know that you're going to be met with something new. Each day is going to be very different from the last. Um, and I'm interested to hear kind of your thoughts on on what keeps you showing up every single day and giving your best, especially on the hard days, because let's be honest, there's some hard days in technology. The internet goes out. Uh, <laughs> it seems to always, always lead back to uh, the, the, the Wi-Fi or something like that, right? Um, so I'm interested, yeah, to hear your thoughts there. I think a lot of it goes back is building a team around you and that team having that same kind of energy. And even, you know, it's, it, we laugh about the part saying, no matter what, if you're working in technology, especially in the customer service role on the front end. So if, if you get a team of technicians or technology specialists, I always tell the guys, you know, anybody that's around me at this point, if something happened in the morning that made that person's day start off bad, it's going to be tech's fault by the time they arrive at work. You've got to smile and you've got to find that solution for them and you've got to find that personability because most of the time when things do go wrong, it is just a ripple effect of things that take place. So we have to, first of all, step back, take in the information that's given to us. What we find often in that scenario is what's given to us isn't even right. It, it may hold a grain of information because everybody's at different tech levels. So part of the kind of the... Uh, Fun, I guess is kind of a part of way of saying it's taking the problem that has come to you and kind of dissecting it at that point to say, 
when somebody says the internet is down, you definitely want to refrain from saying, that is awesome. You broke the internet. This is good. (laughs) And back this up and say, okay, what exactly is not working? Is it your computer? Can you get on the internet on your phone? If you can get on the internet on your phone, data is up and running, cell towers are good. Can you make this Wi-Fi connection? And just kind of starting having kind of a good kind of fun experience and, and kind of that moment of getting the person who is bringing the issue to you, leveling them to the part of saying, okay, we're going to work through this. Let's really talk through what the issues are. And sometimes they're really big. Sometimes that uh, those gale winds come in up here and it does impact us. And we're scrambling around the schools trying to find where the root of the problem is. And sometimes that problem exists not even in our hands, but we've spent half an hour before we even know that it's not us and that it's even external uh, to us that it was going to be a telecom service or a telephone pole, uh, downed wires, things that we can't control. But until we do the troubleshooting and until we walk through all the steps of everybody coming, saying this doesn't work, that doesn't work, this happened, this stopped in the middle of that. And we know we've got a Promethean board that's involved, a microphone that's involved, a laptop that's involved, and a telephone that's involved. It's now putting that puzzle together because now we've got a mystery. What is the, at the end of the day, how do we solve it? How do we get things back up and running? But at the same time, while we're doing that, also, how do we keep education going? And we settle people down because a lot of the less, the newer teachers are so accustomed to tech that when it goes down, they freeze sometimes. So it's saying, okay, what is your backup plan? The veteran teachers that are now where technology became more integrated, especially during the pandemic, they're like, oh, I'm just going to fall back onto how I taught before we started really having technology in the classroom. And it's building that partnership of the new teacher and the veteran teacher at that moment, building and bridging their communication at the same time while we have technology and the team working to find out what the problem is and kind of giving an ETA till things get restored. So a lot of it's, it's like this juggling match of just how many times can we keep, how many different balls can we keep in the air at the same time and keep people calm while moving forward. That's what I admired about you so much. Um, your ability to remain calm, cool, and collected. Is that something that you've had to kind of develop a skill you've had to develop over time? Or do you think it's just kind of innate and that's how you've always been? I think a lot of it is innate, uh, but also in my travels, I have encountered a number of times where being calm and kind of cool and collective really is the difference in the outcome of the events that you get involved with or you come upon. And and that's been from being in uh, a tycoon to uh, different types of strikes taking place to village protests um, that I've encountered in my travels. And one of the things that I've kind of taken from that type of, from the world of travel that I do and from photojournalism, where I have to approach things unbiasedly as a photographer is also applying that same thing in the education environment is we've got issues that's going to come. There, there's always going to be issues. So how do we sit back and take a step and say, okay, now let's really get all the pieces together. And like in travel for me, there's two ways out. 
there's the way towards the embassy and there's the way toward the border. And technology, there's two ways out. There's the call to the external uh, telecom services and see if something else is happening. And the next is walking towards the first MDF to make sure all the lights are on. And then we start breaking it down. And depending on what we find in any of those directions leads us to our next step. And we just really have to be calculated and think through what is probably three different ways to what can happen. And a lot of this for me also goes back as being an outdoor educator. We were always told, find multiple ways to every problem that can come before the problem arises. Because if you're 70 feet in the air on a ropes course, or you're jumping out of an airplane, or you're 60 miles into the backcountry, you're the only one that's going to be able to solve these problems. You want to come home alive. You want to come home safe. You want to get your team in. I take those same approaches from being an outdoor educator, having applied that to how I've traveled and then even into education to just the basic problem solving of Wi-Fi is down. So let's stay calm about it. Let's find the alternate ways. Let's keep kids learning and then let's solve the problems. Yeah. I mean, that, that's just like so opposite of my kind of approach to I tend to um I, this is like such a middle child situation. I tend to like internalize everything and I'm like, <laughs> and the inner monologue is going on and on and on. Um, but then actually once you talk it out and you take a step back and you really like take a deep breath and bring other people into the fold, it's like, oh, okay, that wasn't that bad. That, okay, there's actually a solution to this problem. But my first instinct is to just be like, oh my gosh, it's my fault. Like, what did I do? <laughs> did I unplug something? Um, so I think that you're obviously your background in the, you know, your previous work and um, prepared you for to be a leader um, in technology. So I think that's why a lot of, a lot of people look to you continuously for that um, kind of leadership. What has been um, the most challenging part of your job, do you think? I think in education in general, the most challenging piece we deal with is the political side. Um, and then that's followed by the funding side. To teach people is easy. To put together a network infrastructure, at the end of the day, it may have its different types of layers associated with to it, but it's easy. What we can't control is the human factor. What we can't control is something that is driving how a funding source comes in or what is a rubric that is going to gauge um, how that grant is funded or if a person is even or a school system is even eligible for it. So I think probably my greatest struggles I find even in a leadership position is how do we balance the political side, the community side and the funding side, knowing that every step that we take on technology as it becomes more and more integrated into our schools is now sitting here saying, OK, now that we're in a sense and in the edge of the post pandemic where life is returning back to normal and we're looking at things where we're saying, OK, we still have COVID. We still have these types of things that we're dealing with, but we're back to normal operations. But we went for about two years where we grabbed any and everything that we can make uh, an app work to how do we do uh, um hybrid learning? How do we do fully remote learning? And school systems then receive certain amounts of funding that came in from the federal government during this time. Now, a lot of our work looks at us saying, okay, here's three different products that do the same thing. What has the most resources to it? What is the best one that we can financially afford moving forward? Or are we using these at all? And if not, we need to peel those back. 
So I think one of the greatest challenges now, even as we look at things where there's still that political component in there, the greatest piece now most likely is goes back to do we have continued funding in education because there was an enormous amount that came in during the pandemic period where we were doing remote learning. That's phasing out. And what we're going to be facing in the next two to three years, if not sooner, is where school systems had an explosion of technology come in and all of these resources. But what happens when that Chromebook is no longer uh, a valid device, it can't support the latest technology six years from now or five years from now, or the supply chain was so much so that you could only get a four gig Chromebook and most of the software and apps don't run on it. So how do communities continue education at a technology level when now the, the cost to educate is falling back to the communities? So that's going to be, I think, the greatest challenge is where we're facing now, planning for what we're facing in the future. And in the next one to two years, school systems are really going to be inundated with how do we continue funding technology that's now gone up into six and seven figures in order just for a school system to yeah. run. Yeah. And I know CISA in particular has has shined a lot of um, light on the crisis facing healthcare and education and it will be really interesting to see where that goes, you know, especially concerning cybersecurity, which is still oftentimes in education seen as, you know, a nice to have, not a need to have, right? Because there's other fish to fry. So um, it's certainly an uphill battle. And to that end, I mean, I guess what what keeps you showing up every single day on the hard days and um, what makes it so rewarding, I guess, that you continue to do that? It's just one simple answer. It's the kids. Yeah. We do this for the kids and uh, to see them smile, to see them learn, to be able to provide uh, some type of technology that helps that child who may struggle to communicate or may struggle to learn. And we can put that technology in their hands and they walk away at the end of the day with a smile on their face and they have learned something new during that day. You don't have to be the teacher in the classroom to get that reward. You just simply know that you're a part of a bigger team that makes that happen. And and that's the thing. We do this for the children. At the end of the day, we're helping our future. And by doing that, it's it's showing up and doing the best we can and working collaboratively as teams to develop whatever we need to do to make whatever we need to make work and get as creative as we need to. Because at the end, it's about the kids. Yeah. That reminds me of um, a podcast that I was listening to with uh, Chris Plummer. He works in um, cybersecurity at Dartmouth Health. And he had mentioned that, you know, they really are doing a public service. Um, what the, the work that they're doing is extremely important, obviously. Um, and I feel the same about, you know, it can't be expressed enough in, in education, um, particularly these past two and a half years um, where it's just you see a mass exodus of folks leaving education just because it's been to say that it's been really hard is a profound understatement. So for you to continue to show up for the kids in that way is just hugely impactful. Um, so thank you for continuing to, to do that. Um, but I guess pivoting over, I would love to just kind of hear more about your your photojournalism. And you have been all over the world. You literally went and covered um, Queen Elizabeth's funeral. And this is past weekend. You were at a rodeo covering. And so how did you get into photojournalism and how do you fit it in? 
Well, I got into it, oh gosh, years and years back. My grandmother gave me uh, the first Polaroid camera and it came with one rule. You just don't take a picture of me and I'll buy you as much film as you want. <laughs> and uh, it grew from uh, from an interest of just enjoying taking pictures um, around the farm to then kind of as my travels expanded to really getting into wildlife and landscape photography. And then that just continued to expand, expand itself. And what I found in 2012 is I took on a journey and that journey was to climb to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself on that, if I can reach the summit of Kilimanjaro, And it's taken me 15 years to get to the base of this mountain. And then I have the next nine days. If I can make the summit of this mountain, I can do anything I put my mind to. And from that, it was one one small step. It seemed like in two sliding steps back to get up that mountain. And I summited on 12-12-12 and was the only American out of 44 uh, people that had made it that far. I was the only American to make summit on that day. And I remember thinking I'd waited 15 years to climb this mountain and I spent less than 10 minutes on the summit. And coming down, I just kept telling myself, whatever you want to do and whatever you want to achieve, you can do it because you just did what was the greatest thing you didn't think you could do and you just made it happen. And you were the last one to arrive, but you still made it. And that was kind of one of the things that started kind of that conversation where I got back stateside and I realized I've got a story to tell and I can tell it through being a storyteller. Then I can tell it through being a digital storyteller and a visual storyteller and a visual artist. And so I started meeting with kids. And so not only was I doing my work in technology, but then I would take the time and tell kids the story of what it was like to climb Kilimanjaro. And from there, what it was like then to uh, hike, Machu, hike to Machu Picchu on uh, on the Lares Trail or the Inca Trail. And one piece led to another. And um, a few years later, I ended up basically circumnavigating the world and traveled throughout East, uh, Southeast Asia through Cambodia, uh, Vietnam and Thailand. In Thailand, I got caught in a coup and ended up having to stay two weeks longer. Um, and they would delay messaging that would come in. And so you'd get an, a text out and you wouldn't hear anything back for like six hours. And my text would come in simply say, are you alive? And I would say yes. And it would be 12 hours before an answer would get back to the original sender because the way things were being impacted. But I knew that I had while I was there, I knew I was safe, but I knew I had a powerful tool in my hands. And that was a camera. And I knew from that point I could start telling the human story. And if we can tell the human story, we learn a lot about the world around us and we learn a lot about ourselves. It humbles us and it teaches us that even if we have a bad day, that we need to look around and realize that what we may think is a bad day is nothing compared to a child that's having to walk for water and doesn't get an opportunity to have an education. It's so holding that camera and traveling the world gave me one of the the greatest pieces of a tool I could ever have. And that is telling the human story to say, how do we educate? How do we take education around the world? How do we educate the kids in our own communities and the people around us to be humbled and to realize what a wonderful world we live in? And sometimes it's turning off the TV where we have all of, we hear negativity or caught up in social media and it's saying, step back, smell the flowers. They There really are amazing flowers out there. Go to Hawaii, go to the islands, go to Thailand. 
Um, meet the people, become someone who immerses yourself locally into everything and take in the whole experience itself. You're going to walk away such a richer person, you know, in those opportunities. And I took those moments like that. And when I moved to New Hampshire in 2016, that is when um, I started learning about New Hampshire being first in the nation. And again, it was kind of a dare. Uh, Take it and say, Take your camera and see if you can get in. And uh, I had gone to an event in Hampton Falls. And uh, when I pulled up, the uh, one of the uh, people working the event said, um, who are you? And I said, well, I'm a photographer. And they said, well, just drive on up to the house. <laughs> I did. So, uh, you know, and as I get out, I get my camera gear and I look and there's one line that wraps all the way down that just looks like it's going to be hours to get in or there's a little short line. That has people holding cameras. Well, I got a camera. I threw my camera up on my shoulder and I hopped in that line. And that kind of wrote the real writing for me in becoming a photojournalist because we're standing in line and a gentleman is in front of me and he looks back at me and he laughs and he says, oh, imposter, but a smart one. And I just I just start laughing. He says, keep your mouth shut and follow me. And the curiosity of just who he was and how he interacted with me. And I followed him into the event and he was shooting with a wooden camera and he had uh, brought in three, four by fives. And that was all he was going to do was shoot three images. That was it. And then he was going to leave. But before leaving, he and another photojournalist gave me a second dare. And they said, if you can show up, show up and you can gain access um, to an upcoming event that Saturday, find us. Well, I can't not not take a dare. <laughs> so I did. I, I spent two nights figuring out how to get into this event. And I found out how. And I showed up and I walked down to the bottom, down to security. And they said, uh, are you a photographer? And I said, well, of course I am. And they said, well, go right this way. Your friends are over there. And I walked in and uh, the guys started laughing. And that led to me getting opportunities to work with several different agencies as a freelance photojournalist. And so since then, I've covered all of the political candidates. Uh, I've covered both uh, the last two sitting presidents and most recently coverage from, I guess, from more of a political aspect of is covering uh, the monarchy and that being the royals in the passing of Queen Elizabeth. And uh, I covered the state funeral that occurred in London uh, back a few months ago. And one piece just leads to another. And uh, this weekend I was covering the uh, professional bull riding and uh, basically had elite seats and enough bull slobber and dirt coming my way that I... <laughs> The only thing being closer would have been in the rink with them, and I did not want to be there. So <laughs> thank God for tele- telephoto lenses. <laughs> See, you're incredible because I think, honestly, people can smell my fear when they're like, <laughs> they're near me. So how do you how do you deal with like imposter syndrome or it sounds like maybe it's a non-issue for you? You know, it's it's just not something that you really think about or maybe you don't allow your ta- yourself the time to, to really think about it. The worst thing they're going to tell me is, no, I can't enter. No, I can't do this. No is the only thing they can say to me. And it's like, okay, well, if you tell me no, the next person won't. 
And you just keep at it till you go after to what you want to achieve. Or, you know, maybe today wasn't that day you're going to get to cover something that you want. Um, But other times it becomes the personability and the connectivity to people. It's uh, I I will laugh and I'll use my Southern charm Mm. and I will I will take on that conversation. I'm going to know how your grandmother was doing before I finish the conversation with you if I need to. But a lot of that just simply knows that, you know, if. They tell me no, the conversation carries on to then tell me how I can in the future if the answer is no today. It's just persistence. Yeah, I mean, and that is like uh, so far outside of my like normal. (laughs) So it's just I you are definitely I can definitely get like, you know, a masterclass from you and how to live more boldly and take risks. And I think everyone can. And I, um, you know, I you have you even covered. didn't you go to Alaska last year? Would you? Yeah. So you've been covering the Iditarods. You've been, you've truly been all over. Yeah. I ended up with a bush pilot and we covered and ended up covering the 50th running of the Iditarod and started in, uh, in Anchorage under the ceremonial start, which was this most amazing snow came in. And it was so much snow that came in at the ceremonial start that everybody's standing outside and you turn around and you look and everybody has about two feet of snow stacked on top of their stocking caps and their hoods because the snow is so light and fluffy and it's coming in. And uh, that was just an absolutely amazing experience. And uh, then the following day went to Willow, where the official Iditarod started. And that was then when all teams took off and their next stop would be known uh, to whoever would be the, then the winner. And um, I worked with a bush pilot in Alaska. We would fly over and we would literally track the trails that were set and groomed for the Iditarod racers to go through. And we, from the plane, you literally could see the uh, teams running below with all of their dogs and the sleighs. And then you'd go past herds of moose and then you'd be into the next camp. We would land on frozen lakes and then wait for the actual dogs and the teams to come in. Yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal experience. Yeah. So to all, I think in our, no, I know in our industry, it's really, people feel as though it's really difficult for them to get away, right? Because we're just constantly connected. And at the end of the day, you know, nobody's going to give you a gold star and say, oh, okay, congratulations, Sager, you didn't take your X amount of vacation days. So what do you say to those people that have a hard time getting away and, you know, disconnecting and, and, taking on like adventures like you're speaking to it's it's renewing yourself if you don't stop to take time for you you can't be the best you can be in the profession you choose to be in that's number one number two you're right at the end nobody's going to give you an applause to say that you work nonstop your whole life everybody's replaceable so enjoy your life, live it to the best of your ability and know that the more you multitask and the things that you enjoy doing, it humbles you, it balances you, and it allows you to expand upon who you are and your skills and uh, your conversations with people. And I mean, that's that's the biggest thing. If you take time for yourself and you will build a stronger person in your own personality, in your own being, in your own existence, and your own love for life. Mm, so true. And I, I mean, I could talk to you honestly for forever, but I guess in the interest 
of time, first and foremost, where can folks find out more information about you? I know you have a website, um, which we'll put in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I do. I'm on um, Instagram as Journalist Christy. And that's where I have most of my professional photography at. And then I'm also in the process of updating my webpage, which, of course, is www.christyprosser.com. Perfect. And lastly, I guess, what would you, you know, I guess for the folks that are new to the industry or thinking about getting into the industry, um, could you give us some reasons as to why, you know, what's a what's a compelling reason why to, to venture down this path of uh, technology? It's ever-changing. Every day you're going to learn something new. And when you think you're on a path of something that you think, you say, this, this is my path and this is what I know I'm going to learn and this is what I know I'm going to achieve, you're going to find yourself all of a sudden rerouted a little bit and then you're going to be rerouted again. And that's the part that's so much fun about the industry that we work in and, and especially in education is kind of keeping the task saying that every day I'm going to have the opportunity to learn something new. I'm going to have the opportunity to trouble something, to troubleshoot something. How do we, uh, you know, how do you keep people inspired that way, especially as we do see a mass egress of educators and more and more schools struggling to staff? And I think at the end of the day, we've just got to come back and say, do what you love and follow your heart. And uh, and remember, we're in this business for the kids. And if we f- lose line of sight that we're doing this for the kids, then that's when it's time to step back. And in my case, take a few trips and come back, you know, be humbled and see the world around us. And um, that's really, you know, really it's say is just you know, follow your heart. And if you truly believe in what you want to become, you know, you can impart that knowledge on others as well. Yeah, and I think um there's this uh, famous mountaineer who you've probably heard of, Hillary Nelson, where um, unfortunately she recently uh, passed away in an avalanche. But, um, you know, she said something to the effect of it's a true necessity to have a passion as a compass in life. And I think you are just one of those people that truly exemplifies and lives that every single day. And um, I think it's a rarity, unfortunately. I think we we get caught up in our nine to fives and don't leave nearly enough time um, to explore those passions. And honestly, that's what, you know, drives you day in and day out. And to your point, makes you a better all around person. So I think that's a good reminder for a lot of folks, maybe that will be listening that um, if you have that passion that you've put on kind of the back burner, maybe now is the time to try to explore that and see where it, where it takes you for sure. Make more time for it. Absolutely. Life is one shot live it the best you can. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I am so grateful for your time. I really look forward to actually what is what is next for you as far as um, if you're allowed to say in the photojournalism world, where will it be taking you next? Well, photojournalism is going to be taking me up into Canada um, and actually covering a Dragon Boat Festival in Ottawa uh, with the university. That's going to be uh, probably the next uh, closest thing that I have right now. And then I will be in Greece uh, covering a travel bloggers conference uh, in the spring, then to Puerto Rico following that. And then, of course, in early May will be the coronation of King Charles. Wow. You are profoundly busy. So I'm glad we were able to connect now <laughs> before <laughs> before you're off and running. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. And I uh, I'm very grateful for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me.